You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the drummer for the multi-platinum selling and 13-time Juno-nominated band, The Tea Party, as well as the supergroup Crash Karma. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff Burrows. Jeff, how are you? And is it true that you played hockey against Ty Domi for six years and you survived (laughs) to talk about it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I got to play hockey against Ty Domi. And hi, how are you, Joette? Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here. Um, I've been watching for a long time. And uh, yeah, when I was younger, I was I I really enjoyed my my travel hockey and my my travel baseball. And Ty used to play for he grew up in a town called Belle Belle Riviere, Belle River. And we were from La Salle. So um, we were called Sandwich West back then. And um, yeah, we played against Ty quite a bit. He wasn't a fast guy. He wasn't a goal scorer. That's why when, honestly, when this band was kind of really starting to get moving, I'm like looking over and I'm reading the newspaper and I'm thinking, Ty Domi? Really? Not not this kid named Ryan Reno who ended up playing university hockey and so on and so forth. But he was like the 300 goal scorer kind of guy the Wayne Gretzky type guy. And uh, Ty was just a good hockey player, a great soccer player, a great football player. So not only did I play hockey against him, Stuart Chatwood, our bass player, keyboard player, um, played very good soccer. So Ty, he played against Ty in soccer in high school. And he was the kicker because he was such a good hockey or a soccer player that he played against Ty in football. But Thank God not getting tackled by Ty in football. <laughs> was there any way for Ty to be aggressive in soccer? Could he still be the enforcer in soccer? Or? You know, I don't know. I don't know. He could have. I, I really don't know. I don't even understand soccer, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So when I was promoting that this interview was coming up, yeah. I had all these fans send in fan questions. So I'm going to sprinkle them in throughout the interview. Okay. And I also had some very successful musicians reach out and say, look, I love Jeff. I want to share some kind words. So I wanted to kick this off powerfully. So I have some kind words that are sent in from Renee Couture, the drummer for the standstills. And she, she's amazing. And she sent in, uh, basically a novel. So she really, really <laughs> loves you. And uh, here, here it goes. So she says, I have a quote and a story for Jeff. Jeff has been a massive role model in my life since I took to drums over 20 years ago. Not only is he one of the best drummers on the planet in one of the coolest bands ever, he's also an all around amazing human being. 
Everyone who knows him knows he's the most selfless, generous, and compassionate person you'll ever meet. His ongoing and really nonstop charity work for his community is far beyond anything I have seen and a huge inspiration to myself and my band. He has always been there for us and supported us throughout our careers, something I'll never be able to thank him enough for. A true legend and a friend. And it says, I have a quick story about how rad Jeff is. So she says... Back in our early days as a band, I passed off a CD of ours to Jeff at a show of theirs. Fast forward a few months later and the tea party were in Toronto for a show at the Bovine, uh, sorry, at the Sound Academy, uh, 2011, I believe. And on the night before we were playing the Bovine, Jeff and Stuart came to our show. We were shocked. When we finished our set, Jeff proceeded to help me tear down my kit and carry my gear <laughs> out to our van. As a super fan of the Tea Party, I couldn't believe what was happening. Then he persists that we open for them the next night and tells me he's going to make a few phone calls. Sure enough, the next morning we got the call from their agent and we opened for the Tea Party that night at the Sound Academy. The show That show opened the door for us and he's been in our corner ever since. So that's from Renee from the Standstills. Yeah, she and Johnny are absolutely adorable. Um <clears throat> there's a picture floating around of Renee when she's either 10 or 11 years old. And I'm, I'm at some sort of convention. It was Dale Harrison and I, when Dale was playing with the headstones and I think we were at the Sabian symbol booth and she came with either her dad or, or whomever I can't remember. And, and we got this picture and, and there's, goofy old me with this little girl and now here she is you know uh, a wonderful beautiful intelligent young woman just bashing away on the drums and and you know gaining success worldwide and across canada and and starting to really break it in the states so how can you not be happy for someone like that she's wonderful She's and that's, become, that's touching. That's embarrassing. <laughs> that's she, so, she's become a rock star drummer in her own yeah, right. So she took, took some pages from your book, I believe. And uh, I, I saw her at an intimate show in Kingston. And then I saw her uh, at the Bronson Center opening up for Big Wreck. So yeah. they've been on some amazing, amazing tours. Uh, oh, yeah. Lo lo love those guys. And she <laughs> mentioned that you do a lot of charity work. So uh, some of the char charities that you've locked arms with include the White Ribbon Campaign, Ivory Dad Walk, Transition to Betterness, and Motorcycle Ride for Dad. Uh, why Why do you think it's important that those that achieve success then turn around and give back to those in need? Um, I don't, uh, it's important to me. I mean, I can't speak to others, but I, I've done these types of things for quite a while. And I, I mean, A, I enjoy them. And B, I feel that if, if you're in a position and you do have a little bit of extra time, it's not necessarily about throwing your money out and, and here, I'd rather help you and here's a check for 10 grand or here's a check and, and so on. I'd rather get the hands dirty and lead by example. Um, when I, when I, I, I do this drum marathon every year. Um, and it's for six different mental health charities now. And this was my 17th year. I just completed a 24 hour drum marathon <clears throat> and, um, the way it makes you feel and the way the community comes together and, and bands and solo artists and duos come together to help the cause, not me, but the cause, um, it's fantastic. And it, and it's a community spirited thing. I, I think, um, as, 
time goes on and as technology becomes more and more prevalent, we're losing that face-to-face um, opportunity to make friends, um, m- meet like-minded people who are willing to help and so on and so forth. So it's it's that type of thing and that type of messaging that I like to get across. And rest assured, I've got so many people in my corner that help with so much. And it, it's a wonderful experience. It gets it gets a little um, get a little anxious leading up to those types of things, but uh, it's always fun and it's it's great. And we've got such huge community support. And how does a twenty four hour drum marathon work? Is it you have just a ton of drummers that play thirty minutes each? Are you playing for twenty four hours? How does this work? So this year was the first year we changed it, but normally I start at midnight. And I have different bands join me every hour or two. And I, I get that five minute break between each band switching. So they're bringing their different amps. It's pretty quick. So I get to go grab a, go to the washroom break and then grab a water and then come back on stage and continue. So it's midnight to midnight. This year, we tried it where we moved it for 12 hours out into the county to try to make more money. I mean, that's what it's really about for these entities, these charitable entities. So I did 12 hours there, noon until midnight. And then the next day I went back to the home base where I normally do it. And uh, it was a huge success. So we finally literally got all the monies together um, last week. So we'll be doing a presentation soon for all of the six charities. That's amazing. So we're going to be doing a full two hour deep dive interview here. We are going to cover your life, your career, your discography. Uh, but we're we're going to start all the way back to the beginning. So where did where did this love of music come from? Do you do you have a, a an earliest musical memory that comes to you now when I when I ask about the early days? The earliest musical memory. Um, my my father was a police officer. And um, my mom was a homemaker in our early years um, for my sister, older sister and younger brother. And my mom and my dad were just such huge music fans. My father is a drummer. Now he's a collector of drums and probably the ultimate aficionado when it comes to Ludwig snare drums and literally from the 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way until now. Um, but the earliest memory would be listening to records with my mom and pretending to play drums on the carpet in front of those great, big, long, low-lying stereos. From there, uh, both my sister and I took piano lessons. And my mom just thought it would be something, you know, to expand our horizons because I was such a, I don't want to say I was a huge athlete, but, you know, when you're a kid, everybody wants to be a hockey player. Everyone wants to be a baseball player and now soccer player. So that is what started me in conservatory piano. And I had always heard that my dad was a drummer and I, I, I had never seen him. He was always tapping away and whatnot, but I had never seen him play. And one day I was in our basement and I was doing what kids do and being very uh, <laughs> nosy. And I'm checking under his um, workbench with all of his tools. And I see a drum kit and I'm like, what is this? So it wasn't set up. It wasn't set up. Apparently he was moonlighting, doing some dates with a country band because he was a police officer. And he always did extra things for extra money to provide for us. He was such, he's such a great dad. Anyway, um, I found it and he said, so you want to learn drums? And I said, yes, please. 
And he said, well, you're not touching these. So he got out his old practice pad from when he was a kid from literally 1955. And he bought me some field drumming sticks <clears throat> and a rudimentary book. And he started teaching me essentially the basics from five stroke rolls, three stroke rolls, flams, you know, paradiddles, the whole thing. And uh, from there, uh, I just got a little bit better. And then I started reading a little bit. And uh, then we went out and bought a drum kit. I bought the drum kit with my own money because I was a paper boy and I had aspirations of having lots of things when I was a kid. So <laughs> drum kit, stereo system, all of these things and um, got the drums. My father is also a carpenter. So we uh, refinished these old Motown drums that were literally wrapped in leather uh, with this really nice pearl finish. <clears throat> then I remember I saved up a little bit more and I bought a 14 inch crash symbol with a Ludwig boom stand and um, another crash, I think for $235, I remember. And it was a lot of money back then. That was, I was making about $25 a week doing newspapers. So, um, and that was it from there. I just fell in love with you know, playing drums and putting on my, my parents' big cans and, you know, have this extension cord from, <laughs> from the drum kit to across the family room and, and just listening to, you know, whatever was popular at the time and trying to play it. You mentioned Motown. Didn't your dad find success performing for Motown bands on the road? Yeah, he did a lot of performances, a lot of shows. He played in a band called the Fabulous Pharaohs that were out of Chatham. And uh, he they used to sell out, you know, pavilions in and around the, the Tri-County area, Essex County, Kent County, Lampton County. Uh, a lot of work in Motown. Um, and still a very, very good drummer. Uh, but his passion now lies with, I don't know if you can see him in the background, but I've got one, two, three, four, five. Uh, I've got at least a dozen snare drums of the Ludwig brand, which I'm, I'm falling in love with again, uh, that range in age from the fifties through to the nineties right now, but he's got the collection of all collections. So it's pretty interesting. <laughs> So, so your, your dad with his collection of drums, does he love that his son is sponsored by these amazing drum companies? He, yeah, he's, he's always been cool with that. I mean, he, I have a half brother, his, his other son, Mackenzie, who also plays drums and, and there's a zillion drum kits. I mean, behind me, um, I've got my DW drums and then I've got a, a 1979 completely redone set of Vistalite orange drums, Ludwig. And then there are three 1960s kits for each of my kids and, and one for me. And then of course, you know, all the djembe's and doombecks and whatnot. So yeah, he, he, he loves it, but he's pretty hardcore Ludwig. So if it's not Ludwig for him, it's clap. <laughs> you, you could raise money for charity by opening up your basement as a drum museum, I think. <laughs> More so my dad's basement. There are a lot of people who really want to visit his basement and he's been sick, but he's he's on the mend now. So I think he's going to be taking a lot of people up on that uh, or they're going to be taking him up on the offer of coming to uh, to his his magnificent basement. <laughs> and, and you mentioned that the uh, djembe behind you there, that that was used on the album The Edges of Twilight. <clears throat> Is that correct? Yeah, so that's uh, rosewood, and it's from Africa. It is an animal skin or animal hide. And 
We took it on the road probably all the way through up until maybe 99, like the triptych era. But I just, you know, I was noticing the tuning just going up and down and I really wanted to keep it as it is. And it's just, you know, it's such a work of art that I didn't really want to mess with it. So now, <clears throat> easily enough, um, world percussion has become so popular over the last 30 years, 20 years. Um, now I, I have a, you know, a great modern one that just does the trick and you don't have to worry about it traveling. So outside of your dad, probably being your biggest influence, biggest drum influence growing up, who, who yeah. would you say were your biggest drum influences, the artists that had already made it big, that you looked at them and they were just masters at their instrument and you thought, man, if I dedicate my life to this, if I take lessons, if I practice, that is the pinnacle of what is achievable on my instrument. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like everyone in my age there's always been Neil Peart, Stuart Copeland, um, John Bonham, of course. But I was lucky to have my dad really be involved with the jazz scene. And so your Buddy Rich and your Max Roach and your Gene Krupas and, and all of those standard, amazing, greatest players in the world that you could never... I mean, I couldn't anyway, but you, you aspire to play like them, but they... They perform like dance on the drums. It's it's hard to imagine being able to play like that. I mean, there are some great Canadian drummers that can do that. Like Jeremy Taggart, for instance, is just such an amazing jazz drummer that fuses it into his rock, you know, subject matter and and creates something completely different. And I admire that. I I just don't have that. I'm more meat and potatoes <laughs> and 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 enjoy it but yeah those are the those are the main influences i guess you could gather i had uh, i had jeremy on the podcast at the start of the year and it was amazing because i went through the entire our lady peace discography and when you have that such a wide range of music over a long period of time you could really see uh jeremy's drumming as being one of the highlights of that band truly was and the way that they're mixed they're quite a bit in the forefront which is interesting because i mean hearkening back to the jazz era the drums weren't really ever in the forefront but then when you hear your zeppelins and you hear your rush stuff it is and then when you hear the quirkiness of a Stuart copeland it was but those were very different compared to most you know rock genres so i i definitely uh appreciate the olp stuff that has those mixes so up front so you, you got into music pretty early, but before falling in love with music, was there anything as a kid that you wanted to be when you grew up? Some kids want to be firefighters, like maybe an NHL player, anything else? Uh, yeah, it was probably a hockey player or a baseball player. You know, if we're talking pre-12 years old or pre-10 years old, it, it was definitely that. I had the parents who um, were so vested in each of us, uh, us three kids, that you know, coming home from work, I can, I can hardly imagine it now. I mean, my kids are grown up, but coming home from work after a long day's work, being a cop, getting dinner in quick, loading gear and helping me load gear into the car, driving, you know, an hour and a half to get to a hockey game and then having to get up again at six in the morning the next day, it tires me out thinking about it. Um, but that's what, you know, the great parents do. And I can, I can honestly remember, I mean, I loved hockey so much but i would i was better at baseball but i still loved baseball but hockey was just so much fun so 
<laughs> I, you know, I was I, very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I'm a, I'm a goalie. I played hockey this morning at 7 a.m. And I, I Jeff, I'm ashamed. Uh, we gave up a three nothing lead in the first and we lost the game. So I, I wait a minute. Wait a minute. We gave up. I think Joel Martin gave up three goals and you lost. How dare you, sir? <laughs> we will not talk about the complete collapse of the defense. Where anyway, is my defense? I, I regret bringing this up immediately. But uh, to change the subject, if I were to meet you at 12 years old, so I believe you got into music and playing at around 11. If I met you at 12, yeah. who would I be meeting? You'd be meeting a kid with tight Levi's, a cutoff shirt, hair parted in the middle, my goody comb in the back, listening to Rush, ACDC, the cars, and with my buddy, Jeff Martin, <laughs> right next to me. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, just two normal guys who were just flabbergasted at each other's, although I, I didn't really have crazy drumming ability, honestly, ability, but when when you've been playing drums for so long and all and it's an atonal instrument and you're not getting anything out of it you're playing to the music that's fun and jeff learning from his uncle larry how to play guitar which was fun but you know the moment he heard me do a fill or something he was looking at me and then the moment i heard him you know play revolution by the beatles which we have recordings of by the way from my father um it was it was just energetic you know there's nothing that would you'd never want to do and again our fathers would load up our gear and we were doing tours of elementary schools around the county and who can resist you know girls two grades older than you in elementary school wearing jordash jeans and a pat benatar sweatshirt i mean it was the greatest thing on earth you were just like look at all these girls yeah you either you either needed a car or you needed uh, a band to to get the girls Seriously, two years older it was pretty funny <laughs> can, can you remember the first concert that you attended i, I it's shocking it you know i've i've interviewed say 110 musicians now and most of them, regardless of what age they are now, it was either Rush or Kiss. Can you remember the first concert that you saw? This is embarrassing. Well, it's not embarrassing. It's a band. Um, I was quite young and they came to Windsor and I don't even know how it happened. But uh, Australia's own air supply rocked Windsor Stadium. Ooh. And we went to that show. And again, it was just about meeting girls. So <laughs> I hope I don't sound horrible, but that, I mean, you're a kid. That's, that's all you wanted to do. And uh, it was great, but that sprung, that was, you know, the launch pad to start going to see all of these amazing bands. And, you know, I had seen, I had seen rush so many times and spent so much money that, you know, by the time we did sign with SRO, I told, our manager, Ray Daniels, how much money he owes me because <laughs> I had spent so much money on his band. I wanted to commission what I spent on his band from him. That's pretty cool. When when you hang out with Alex now, do you make him pay for the meals because <clears throat> of all the money you sank into Rush? Oh, God. No, man. No, no. Alex is a very nice man. Speaking of someone who gives back all the time. Whenever I do my my marathon, my twenty four hour drum marathon, uh, he's first in line to help and and to give so anonymously. Um, so thank you for that, Alex. Always. <laughs> you mentioned that you were able to buy drums 
by working as a paper boy and saving up. What are yeah. some of the other jobs that you had before you became a full-time musician where music paid the bills? Our, our listeners love to hear yeah. all the crappy jobs that these <clears throat> rock stars had so they know that that they're real people like us that have struggled oh, with. Gosh. Okay. So I've always had a job. Always. Um, paper boy starting when I was nine until probably 12. From there, because I was in hockey, I started working at the sports shop at the arena, sharpening skates mostly. From there, I was uh, pruning apple trees for a summer. From there, I got a job for probably three years while I was in high school, uh, pumping gas and then learning to change oil and, you know, power steering fluid and all of that sort of stuff. And that was great because that was about the time <clears throat> I was 15 and Jeff Martin and I used to have these Canadian tire mopeds that were gas fueled and would go 35K. There's a photo of this somewhere. I think his cousin has it. It's hilarious. But there we are, you know, two cool dudes, 15 so, years so old. So badass. On these yellow Canadian tire mopeds. And um, so that helped. And of course, at that point, you know, girlfriends are starting to come around. And so you needed money. So that was the gas station. From there, I was in university and the band's playing. But I got a job at the Canada Post processing plant. And it, that was tough only because I would literally do a midnight shift from 11 to 7, get home, eat something, sleep a little bit, go to school at university until about 2, get back, sleep a little bit, have a band practice, <laughs> sleep a little bit, go back to, to work at midnight or 11. So that was a big, big help. And I have to thank my my wife's uh, late aunt for that, Aunt Louise. She got me involved in that and that helped quite a bit. And then um, I stayed in school as long as I could because I didn't know whether the band was was going to happen. It was it's it's a it's a tough road, right? Like and and I get it and I get why people have backup. And that was my backup. I still had school and I was going to finish up and possibly pardon me possibly become a teacher. So um, that's where that ended. And then uh, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the band was signed and we were playing. I mean, every weekend from Friday in Windsor, uh, sorry, Thursday in Windsor, Friday in London, Saturday in Toronto, and then back for a Sunday matinee um, in Windsor. And that was our life for about a year and a half, a year maybe, yeah. So let's uh let, let's dive into the tea party. So you know you you knew Stuart and Jeff since you were young. You know, mm -hmm. I thought you guys you went to the same high school. I thought you guys started to know each other in high school, but it sounds like you knew Jeff since you were 11 or earlier. Yeah. Um so you went to the same high school. Uh your high school had a delicious name. Can you share the name of your high school? <laughs> we come we were we were from a township called Sandwich West. So this was Sandwich Secondary. And it's not home of the hoagie. <laughs> it's not <laughs> home of the sub. But yeah, we, we went to Sandwich Secondary. And there's such... Um, it was great. So Jeff and I, of course, were in and out of bands. Um, always in the same band until at least grade nine. But then we started experimenting and you make new friends and we're in and out of different bands. And we met this cool kid named Stuart Chatwood. 
who still had a bit of a English accent, like a, a touch. And um, he was super cool, but he, he didn't play anything. And he was left-handed and Jeff is left-handed, but plays guitar right-handed. So he showed Stuart literally how to play. And then he'd switch to bass and then back to guitar. So um, yeah, then bands in and out with each other um, all the way through high school, playing high school dances and, and so on and so forth at different places. And um, yeah, it just sort of kind of grew from there, you know? And at what point did the three of you guys who had already known each other had played together in various forms? What point did the idea of starting like a legit serious band together, the Tea Party, where did that start? Sure. So Jeff and Stuart had a band that came from the high school. So once they were done at high school, I think they went to university for a few months and then decided, forget it. We're moving to Toronto. We want to try to make it big. And I was rah, 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 good for you guys. Like, go for it. So um, they moved to Toronto and kind of in between there uh, before them moving or I think we, we near the end of high school and then while in university or maybe while in university, Jeff Martin and I did a blues duo. So <clears throat> what we did is he'd play and sing and I had a set of uh, Taurus pedals where my hi-hats were. And I would play the bass parts with my left foot and play the drums, which is a little easier than you think. But it, it was it was so much fun and it's challenging. But once you got it, you got it. So we used to make incredible money as two, you know, broke out of out of school, out of work kind of guys. And it worked out really well. So while that was going on, he was he moved to Toronto. And would occasionally come back to Windsor and we do these gigs, but he's trying to make it in, in the band, the Stickmen, which were amazing band. Um, one time, both of the guys were down and we were drinking in our favorite watering hole called the Coach and Horses, which is right downtown. It's It's gone now. Um, they saved the building, mind you. And we were just having pints as we do <clears throat> and chatting with, I think it was one of the managers who used to have Jeff and I in to play as our duo. And she said, hey, I've got something coming up in three weeks. Would you guys be able to put the duo together? We said, oh, okay, well, we'll think about it, whatever. So we go to the table and Chats is there. And I looked at Jeff and I said, well, why don't we just do like a trio? So I don't have to do the bass pedal thing. And Stuart's like, I'm in, sounded like fun. So at this point, their band was getting a little bit rocky. And we decided to go up to Cherry Beach Studios in Toronto on the water. Is that still there? Cherry Beach Studios? No? I'm not sure. Eh, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, we went there. We had a marathon jam session. You know, everybody says somewhere between eight and 24 hours, but it was probably about 10 hours or so. And we just laid out 245s or 345-minute sets of you know standards that we all knew and it wasn't that hard to get together and we we brought that show back home to Windsor for a Friday and a Saturday night and the Friday night had you know the average crowd of maybe 80 people it's a smaller pub and then the next night word of mouth got around and there was about 120 people jammed in there and then up the stairwell and then out the door and around the block because word had gotten out that we sounded good, I guess. So that was the beginning of when we started talking, should we 
do something. And, and it kind of fell onto their shoulders. I mean, they had a, a really good band who was, you know, getting a modicum amount of attention and success in Toronto area and so on. But, you know, they just didn't feel it. It just wasn't a good fit at this point. So we said, okay. And then was I going to move to Toronto or was, were they going to come back down here? And, and so they ended up moving up, moving back down to Windsor so that we can save some money and really work on our craft because this way that coach and horses venue had three floors and the very top floor was empty. They allowed us to create our own studio rehearsal place because they knew when we would be booked downstairs, which was literally every other weekend at this point, um, they knew that they were going to make a lot of money because the crowds were insane. And so we built this studio <clears throat> out of the old fish market from London because the, the coach and horses and the old fish market were all in the same building. They had these freezer walls and we built a studio out of freezer walls. We brought up couches and chairs. We had a rec room. We had an old pool table. We had everything. It was amazing. And we did that for probably two years. The only hard, the hardest part about that was uh, <laughs> trying to get up the stairs because these stairs were brutal. And, you know, you're coming from a show at call the office or something and it's four in the morning and you're just like, Oh God, get these things up these stairs. Jesus Christ. It's so heavy. All the amps. Oh man. And Stuart, God bless him, made this great drum case for the entire kit that once you emptied all the drums, you put the case back together and it acted as a drum riser brilliant in concept but the weight of this thing had to be three four hundred pounds and it was just you know it was it was tough but uh we had some pretty strong girlfriends back then <laughs> was that yeah you you uh chose your girlfriends based on on <laughs> upper body strength uh was that the most important gig in the tea party's career because if the person from that venue does not ask you guys to play maybe the trio doesn't form exactly and her name was Cynthia, and she was great. Um, she's friends with Kelly Hoppy, uh, Mr. Chill. And uh, she, it was essentially a blues bar, but they they let us come in and because <clears throat> we had how, always been going there, like since we were 17, just lying about our age and watching these um, amazing blues artists from Detroit come in and just wow us with their prowess and their fingers that are this long and just, you know, blowing everybody away. So... Yeah, it, it really comes down to that moment when she had asked us to, you know, to play, I guess. Thank you for bringing that up. I'd never thought about it that way. <laughs> so I have some kind words sent in from somebody that was there all the way from the beginning. This is from Stuart Chatwood, the bass player for the oh, Tea Party. Geez. So he says, Jeff has had a passion for music from a young age, and I was amazed at his drumming chops as a young teenager. As we've spent the last 35 plus years together, it's been a pleasure to watch him evolve into a model citizen that cares deeply about his community and the well-being of others. So that's from Stuart. Oh, Chatwood. <laughs> I love Chats. He's amazing. He's the most well-rounded, gifted person I know. He's such a good guy. So in 1991, you guys released your debut album, Self-Titled. Uh, this was recorded independently. When you think back to that album, what comes to mind? Okay, so the album was recorded within those walls, those freezer walls. 
And the funniest thing that comes to mind was we did it all ourselves. And I remember being in the corner on that heavy duty drum riser that Stuart had built. Everything's mic'd up and uh, going through a couple takes and you play the song a million times, but I kept, you know, fucking it up. And I'm like, come on, man, let's get this together. And Jeff said, you know what? Let's just, let's just not roll film, just or, or roll tape. Just, just keep playing, you know? So, okay. I'll just keep playing. So I'm playing away and then I'm looking over and I'm seeing the thing spinning around and I'm like, you son of a man. <laughs> and I didn't mess it up. And then uh, he tried to cook. Jeff continuously tried to pull the old, the tape's not running. <laughs> That's the oldest trick it. in the producer book. Uh, yeah. And you would know, right? So I, I was pretty green when it came. Well, we all were pretty green when it came to recording at that point, but um, that was hilarious. So that's one of the things that really, really uh, stood out was, it was the fact that they were tricking me into believing that the tape was not rolling. So (laughs) with you guys recording that album yourselves, do you think that really helped Jeff uh, to, to go on to be the producer that he's become? Yeah, he he really, really wanted that. And he's such an, um, an incredible musician. I mean, it, you know, he he can play anything with strings and um, he's pitch perfect and, you know, and he's pretty humble about it, despite what the exterior may show. Uh, he he's he's so good at what he does. So <clears throat> when it did come time to negotiating when we were offered a a record deal that was um you know probably the third thing that was being mentioned is that oh no we are self-produced kind of thing and it was a tough cookie to nut to crack but you know or nut to crack but that's what happened yeah so it's, it's really hard for a band to sound unique with the amount of music that's released globally, yet somehow yeah. from the start, the Tea Party had a, a signature sound. How important was that to the band to really cultivate that unique sound? We we loved it. I mean, of course, we got our comparisons and every band does. And <clears throat> the way we looked at it was, you know, if you're going to compare us to anyone, if we're the Doors with meets Led Zeppelin, well, thank you. Uh, it, it doesn't get much better than that. They were they were throwing them as shade, and we were like, "Well, sure, Jeff's a baritone, plays guitar, you know, just a little bit better than Jim Morrison," and you know what I mean. It, it couldn't have been much better. So those comparisons help. I mean, if you're compared to to someone that you don't appreciate, I guess that would be a, a bit of shade. But um, we always try to be ourselves. We never really wanted to be a band where everyone is expecting the exact same sound but different songs we and and god bless the bands you know acdc who doesn't love acdc but it's it's the same sound the same drum sound regardless of who's playing and they have the big fat wall of guitars and the very thick twos and fours on the snares and that's what they do and that's wonderful but it's just not what we wanted to do and and there are a lot of bands out there like that now and i can appreciate it because you get into this wacky industry to to do something different and to challenge yourself and to not punch in and punch out. And <clears throat> when you when you start recording the same things, types of things over and over, it almost feels like you are punching in and punching out because you're playing them live every night. And the last thing I want to do every night is be four on the floor and just, you know, yawning through the half set kind of thing. There's there's no time because every limb is moving almost at all times. So 
It's wonderful that way. We've set it up nicely for ourselves. When when you guys first started those recording sessions, was the goal just to record a demo to try to get a record deal and then it ended up being a full length that you released independently? No, I we wanted to do an album at that point, um, which was good. I mean, I specifically remember as I was talking earlier about doing the Windsor, London, Toronto back and forth. Um, I remember, and I don't even know how it happened, um, but Hal Harbour, or Hal Arbor, he just passed away, I believe, on Edge 102. Um, we had finished a show probably at Sewat on Front Street, is where we normally played. And we were coming home probably at four in the morning, and we heard Save Me, the indie version of Save Me. And we were just like, what is happening? So that was that was the big thing for us. And we didn't really have to do the the three song demo kind of thing. I think we had done that even in high school. And I do believe we have a rejection letter. I think Stuart has a rejection letter from Warner back then, <clears throat> but that's what you do when you're kids, you, you just try, try, try. But our, our, our position then was let's do an album. And then we ended up getting a publishing deal before we got our record deal with Warner Chapel. And at that point, <clears throat> Jeff Kulowick was fielding different record companies and EMI came along and said, yeah, we'd love you to re to record and we'd love Jeff to produce or co-produce if that's cool. And from there we did a three or five song sort of capital records, um, capital before EMI records demo kind of thing. And they, they loved it. And then we got to go back and finish it. So that's that easy enough story, I guess. <laughs> Is it true that that independent <clears throat> album that you guys only printed about 3,500 copies? So now, you know, you've, you've remastered and re-released it in the last few years, but yeah. is, is it true that there's, there's just 3,500 of those originals that are probably collector's items now? Yeah, there's, I think the way it worked is it was, I think the first pressing was 2,500, but then, as I mentioned, we were getting lots of um, friendly feedback from edge 102 or whatever it was cfny 102 back then and so we ended up doing a small second pressing of maybe 1500 or, or 1300 i think there's 3800 total where we do thank cfny and so on and so forth because for us as young guys in a band how cool does that look you're thanking these radio stations that you grew up dreaming of being on so you know we we listed some of those and and some of the people that came along and helped us along the way and our new agent and and that sort of thing so so you, you mentioned you signed with emi then in mm -hmm. 1993 you guys released your major label debut album splendor solace three singles the river save me and a certain slant of light the album reaches the top 20 in canada it ends up yeah. going double platinum gets <laughs> juno nominations best hard rock album best new group what did those juno nominations to you uh, mean to you i mean you've had 13 nominations over the years so you probably just get used to it it seems like yeah. every album you put out got nominated for something yeah. maybe you yeah. take it for granted over the years but those first two you guys are in your early 20s what did it mean to you that your country acknowledges your your passion your hard work your talent this is canada's grammys yeah that it was very exciting to to put the cherry on the top was the fact that we had been in europe by then 
for about two months <clears throat> and still had probably a month, month and a half to go. And we, while we were there, we found out we were nominated and so on and so forth. And it was a nice feeling because we really didn't know what was going on back home because there was no internet. I mean, I'd buy a phone card and and talk to my wife <laughs> and, and you'd memorize that 27 digit code. But we were, I think we had just finished uh, playing in Berlin and we had gotten news from our manager that, that we had been up and, and, and up for these. And we just thought it was fantastic because it it was pretty it's a lonely road out there when the world is as big as it was back then um it's very different now and and i'm not you know dismissing it but it was it was really hard like you're gone away for 3 months with barely even able to speak to your wife or your girlfriend or your parents or whatever cuz you're such a young guy um but that was refreshing and it was you know an honor my goodness you know I think we were in the same category with the hip. So when you're young, you're thinking, oh my God, our song is just past the hip on the charts. And you know, it's it's not like a yeah, we're better than anything. It's no, it's not that. It's just like, wow, we're even being considered at the same level as the people that we've admired for so long. You know, like imagine 10-year-old me looking at a chart, seeing my band and Rush had huge chart success all the way up to number one, but now they're at 28, 28, and we just surpassed them at 26 or something. Like, it was just like, oh, <laughs> what's happening? So, it, yeah, so much fun back then. And what thoughts, memories, emotions come to you when you think back to that major label debut album that really kickstarted this adventure you've been on for 30 plus years? Uh, you know what? We were so young and you got to meet so many amazing people in the industry. So the industry obviously has changed in 30 years, but back then um, it was still a time and a place where you had, <clears throat> you know, an album rep, a record rep, and that was David McMillan, who's amazing. Um, and yeah, he, he's done everything in the industry. And then we got to know the whole record company. But then when you started going on the road, you're meeting local reps. So you'd meet these local reps in Winnipeg, local reps in Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal, and I still know them all. And they're all on to doing usually something within the industry, but they've all moved on to something greater and better. And just to meet these people and hearing about how intricate it is. So I remember one example, and I believe it was Calgary, where the the record rep, everything was popping. Uh, the river was probably out and we were probably about to do a second single or maybe the second single had come out. And the record rep was talking numbers. So when you're in a band, you don't care about how many units or how this product or this, and you know, and they were just shooting all this mumble jumble. I'm like, break it down. What are you talking about? And he said, we were expecting the overall two-year period of this first album to sell max 40,000. And everyone was very, very excited about it because of this. And he said, I just came back from this record store, this record store, this record store. I have a pre-order now of 8,000 units. And I'm like, is that good? He goes, we're in Calgary. This is 8,000. They're going to sell them all next week. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So it's those types of things that were so 
new and so foreign to us. Maybe not Jeff and Stewart, but I was just so enamored with the entire process of us being able to go to another province, another country, and watch someone sing the lyrics back to you and watch, uh, you know, a, a younger person air drumming to what I'm doing. That it's phenomenal. And it's such a, a high that you don't really think about those those numbers and the product and and so on. And I just found it pretty fascinating. Normally, when a band signs to a major label and they're mm -hmm. recording their debut, <clears throat> the label wants to choose an established producer that has a track record of success. That's almost that's as much of a guarantee that they're going to get a great final product that's commercially viable. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned before that Jeff was able to produce uh, that major label debut album. He was like 24. Like that's unheard of. And and you mentioned not only did they allow him, but that was actually they were asking if he could produce it, I believe, when you were signing. Uh, yeah. What did it mean to the band that the label had that much faith in you guys, in him as a producer, and that by having Jeff as a producer, you would you would uh, hold on to that creative control in the studio? For the band, it meant everything. Um, it, again, we were very green around the gills, but this just meant, you know, artistic control, um, you know, just everything that we wanted to do without constraint. I mean, some of the songs clock in at seven minutes, eight minutes, and it's just unheard of, especially back then. This is when grunge was just about taking off. <clears throat> so for us, but I should point out on the first album, we did EMI asked if Glenn Robinson, who is an amazing producer slash engineer, so on and so forth, um, if he can be in studio with us in Burlington, Vermont, to act as, you know, the uh, the medium between this massive board, the massive studio, help engineer songs, you know, it there's so much to learn. So as um as as that master that truly helped Jeff, I think, um, become the producer he is today. So Glenn was very cool because his father had produced, you know, the likes of Corey Hart and so on and so forth. He had just finished doing another EMI artist, 13 Engines. Um, I think it was Perpetual Motion Machine. They're amazing. Uh, he did their record. And for us, he came in and, you know, we had none of us had ever been in a real studio setting. So he really, really helped us as a band, but more specifically, he sat with Jeff and showed him this, that, and whatnot, and quite a few tricks of the trade as we were recording, which was wonderful. So you, we do have to give props to Mr. Glenn Robinson. So I went back and watched the music videos for the three singles from that major label <laughs> debut album, and yeah. I thought that you guys did a great job with those three videos to really really share the worldly sound and visuals that the band would further um, build for the rest yeah. of your career. I thought you did a great job of introducing the band to the world through that medium. Uh, did, yeah. Were you guys taking the the music videos very seriously with how it could help you guys achieve what you wanted? So again, being very new, the I remember this was uh, June... Uh, June 6 at 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. Um, the river was done. And that's the first time we ever met Renee Beach, who had, was our stylist and still is occasionally, uh, but was our stylist 
all the way through our, our career until probably 2002. And um, she really brought the proper aesthetic. She really helped us with that. The, the director, Floria Sigismondi, who is world renowned now, um, she did an incredible job, so much so that we brought it to Australia for a certain slant of light because it was so, you know, necessary. And her visuals really helped, you know, put across that, <clears throat> I don't know, uh, I want to say like untampered sound. It, it There was not many tricks done in the studio. Everything was pretty dry. You know, there's there's no trickery. There's no this. There's no that. You hear mistakes in the songs, um, which I love. So, uh, I think I think with the video, and we got even more and more vested into that because it was a cost. These are costs that you need to recoup as an artist. And when they start cross collateralizing those costs with different albums, you're like, are we ever going to get out of this hole? Kind of thing. So you really wanted to be able to take charge. And um, we did, and Stuart did it, especially. Stuart is very much interested in all the uh, video artwork, et cetera, et cetera. So it helped a lot. So if the video <clears throat> game Guitar Hero approached the Tea Party and they were requesting just one song that they would put in an upcoming game that fans around the world could play guitar alongside, what song would you submit? So from that album... Uh, the river, it'd be hard to beat the river in Guitar Hero. And from later on in the career, maybe Writings on the Wall is pretty badass on guitar. Uh, what song comes to you for uh, Guitar Hero choice? Um, okay, so what song comes to me? Oh, geez, there's so many. There's some songs. pretty badass guitar riffs throughout the discography. Yeah, there's, and I can't even remember the song right now. Um, <laughs> was this on the pre-questions? I did not see this. Um, I don't know. That's I mean, all good. Jeff, Jeff has a really good, uh, you know what? There's a solo, uh, The Ocean at the End. So our latest album, album, which is 10 years ago, but the full-length album, The Ocean at the End, the title track, The Ocean at the End, I think is fantastic. The, the guitar solo at the end, it's it's probably the only song, I think, off that album that we still perform live. And it's just one of those mood pieces that starts off quiet, very Pink Floyd-y, and by the end of it, it's just this massive, you know, homecoming of love and heartfelt and unadulterated passion. And Jeff is just wailing on it. And it just goes on and on. And man, yeah. So I would say the ocean at the end, definitely. And I'm glad I chose something that is not from the earlier collection because you should pick up the ocean at the end. <laughs> there you go. So instead of just asking you guitar questions, I'm going to ask you some drum questions. So this okay. is the first <clears throat> fan question. This is from Kendra Roy. Her question mm -hmm. is what song do you find the most challenging to play? Um, hmm. I would probably say <clears throat> army ants which is a song off transmission. That's a very fun track to play. It can get a little heavy. I, oh, transmission is very heavy because I just beat the snot out of the drums. But um, Army Ants is very fun, very difficult. I remember m not mocking, but borrowing <laughs> 
from um, Matt Cameron uh, from Soundgarden, uh, a little bit of my bell action uh, in the chorus of that song. And uh, whenever I'm hitting the bell, the, the kick drums at the same time, there's just a lot of work that goes into that song. And uh, mind you, it, it's not difficult. It's just a fun song. But if it ends up at the end of the set, that's when they become difficult. Transmission, for example, <clears throat> a very easy song to play. But if you play it like I play it, it's it's not easy. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> As a guitarist listening to the Tea Party discography, the song Save Me sounds like it would be impossible to play on drums. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so easy. Um, I've learned how to control my breath when I play that song because there are some heavier parts that require a little bit of muscle. But honestly, um, I get to catch my breath in the beginning of that song. So if we play something heavy, heavy, and there's no talking, say, between that song and Save Me, I can go right into the pattern and rest assured I am breathing in my nose, out my mouth, and just kind of taking it easy because you don't have to beat the hell out of the drums because it's it's such a nice little pattern. So we have some kind words sent in from an iconic drummer who says that the song Save Me changed his life. So this is from Rich Beto, former uh, drummer for Finger Eleven, Santa Sonia, and he was over in the UK touring with Daughtry recently, which is amazing. Oh, amazing. And he sent in quite possibly the longest quote in podcast history. Uh, it's a full page, and I'm going to do my very best to read through this. All right, oh, so geez. here we go. Okay. Rich says, when I saw you were having Jeff on the podcast, I couldn't wait to write something. Let me start with this. Jeff is one of my favorite drummers of all time. I saw Jeff in the Tea Party live so many times before I ever got to know him. I've been such a huge Tea Party fan since their very first record came out. The drumming on the, sa on the song Save Me changed my life. It is in my top three drum performances of all time. The musicality of it, the groove of it, and the almost drum solo section halfway through blew my mind when I first heard it. The groove he created for the intro and verses on that song are one of the coolest patterns I've ever heard. Then I saw him play it live and was 100% brought to tears, like for real, to tears. <laughs> the power of it live was stunning. It took me years to figure out what the hell he was playing, and I probably still have it wrong today. It's a song that I show drummers that may not have heard the song or the band before. There have been many a back lounge late night air drumming sessions to that song with some pretty notable players out there. When Edges of Twilight came out, I couldn't believe how the band and songs had grown into full-fledged arena rock band anthems. With these magical videos to go along with them, all the guys had a godlike presence to me. The songs, the videos, and the look <laughs> of the band members, they had it all. As if they couldn't blow my mind anymore, all of a sudden, I hear the opening to Temptation. Never had I heard a drummer doing this before. The use of samples and drum programming into the songs and his kit made Transmission such a huge example to me of what growth meant for a band. Top to bottom, perfect album. I could go through a bunch more of their records, but I think you get the idea of what Jeff means to me in my musical life and journey. Years down the road, when I got to meet Jeff and open for the band, I remember thinking to, my, thinking to myself, okay, act cool. Don't fanboy out on him. Don't make an ass of yourself, Rich. I'm sure I failed at that, but you wouldn't have known because Jeff is so sweet and welcoming. Jeff is an amazing human being, a beautiful family man and loved by so many. I ran into Jeff's son over in Germany last year when I was filling in for Daughtry. He's an incredible drummer and him and his band are working hard and paving their way like his dad did to a bright future. What else can I say? 
Jeff's become a brother to me now, but I will always secretly be that fanboy to him and his legendary band. The Tea Party will go down in history as one of Canada's best bands. That's from Rich. All right, interview over. I mean, geez. <laughs> Drop the he mic. Is, he is such a nice guy. Um, I think I remember the first time I saw him with... Um, Finger uh, was it finger? Yeah, it was finger 11 at that point. Um, and I believe it was at stages in Kitchener and yeah, they blew the roof off. It was amazing. Yeah. They're so good. He's such a good player, such a different style. And I've always loved that about him. I got to meet his folks too one time and they were very, very nice. So, um, yeah, thank you, Rich. Oh my goodness. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a little much, but thank you. <laughs> So in 1995, <laughs> you guys released the next album, The Edges of Twilight. There's four yeah. singles, Fire in the Head, The Bizarre, Shadows on the Mountainside, and Sister Awake. This helped propel the band into the mainstream. The album went to number 11, more Juno nominations. Were you guys feeling massive pressure to follow up the multi-platinum major label debut? Honestly, no, we weren't. Um, we When that first album came out, the first one, um, we had already started writing more songs. So <clears throat> by the time Edges came out, we were just dying to, to get into studio. And one of the perks of, of being with a major label at that point was they said, where do you want to go? And I don't know if, if they suggested or if Jeff said, let's go here. But we were on the road <clears throat> touring and we were in L.A., and they couldn't accommodate um they couldn't accommodate our electric set because I, it might have been something like a bb kings or our house of blues and they had a big show later that night so we were in i think probably doing something for an american company at the time and a producer saw us by the name of ed stasium so again Ed Stasium fell in love with the band and it was an opportunity to get into some American ears and Ed really loved the acoustic side of things. So Ed's background was every single Ramones album and of course uh, the extremely incredible uh, Living Color album. So we were like, oh man. So again, I don't know if it was Ed or if it was Jeff or it was the record company, but we got to go to A&M Studios in, uh, in Los Angeles and we're just blown away over the fact that, my God, we're in LA and we're, we're in a little apartment and I was so excited. I'm like, you guys take the bedrooms. I don't care. I'm just going to build a little mattress on the floor and hang out and <laughs> do my thing. So we worked with Ed and Ed treated this whole thing exactly like glenn robinson did with our first record he enabled jeff to do whatever he wanted however he wanted showed him more tricks i got to meet this drum builder slash collector by the name the drum doctor ross garfield and you can look him up he still has his place in los angeles he stores thousands of drum kits from every major player you could think of and he also built a kit for me it's not here no it's I, actually I think this. he was featured in a documentary on drums i just watched on netflix a few months ago it had taylor hawkins and all these amazing drummers in there no doubt i i, I now i want to go see it <laughs> but um he was incredible so he brought a kit for me so we didn't have to travel with a drum kit we didn't have to travel with amps jeff brought a few guitars but mind you that is where jeff discovered matchless amplifiers 
um, with whomever he was working with. I can't remember the guitar tech then, but we had a tech for Jeff there. We had, we had Ross Garfield come and help me set up these drums that he let me use. And then he built a kit for me. So we were in heaven and that second record, I mean, so much fun to do, but we were so well rehearsed, you know, they're very much the live versions of the songs. We don't really um, skip anything. Uh, when we were there every day, we were having uh, coffees with Neil Young because Neil Young was in the studio overseeing the mixing of Mirror Ball that he did with Pearl Jam. So we got to meet Neil. We got to hang out with Neil. Uh, you guys are from Canada, huh? <laughs> and uh, met his son. It was just this this whole time. And we were in Studio A, which um, the Rolling Stones had just completed doing the Voodoo Lounge. So Studio A was the Voodoo Lounge. And we were now the next contestant in the Voodoo Lounge. So I'm literally like just thinking to myself, oh, my God, like Keith Richards and Charlie Watt used this tap. I'm going to the bathroom to take a whiz. And I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are pissing in this. <laughs> like just weird shit. But it was just so mind boggling to me. And then, you know, we ended up seeing a bunch of the guys from Alice in Chains and and um, Rob Terullo was still with uh, Suicidal Ozzy? at that point. No, I think he was still with Suicidal. But we toured with him when he was with Ozzy, which was amazing. But um, yeah, just people are just so friendly. Um, and that record was oh, so much fun to make. We had all the toys, all the percussion instruments, all everything. It It took a long time. We were in no hurry. We were not given a clock. And um, I think the, the first album was still selling, so they didn't care. And we were just having a great time. We got to meet this amazing photographer by the name of Dean Carr. <clears throat> and he ended up being a photographer slash video artist. And he's gone on to do every Marilyn Manson, like the heyday of Marilyn Manson and, and all of these big bands. And uh, he's been a friend since. But um he did the fire in the head video and it was again we had to come back and and do it but he was just so cool the whole experience was mind-boggling so the album features many instruments from around the world and we have a fan question sent in about that uh -oh. and this is this is this might be the highest praise you've ever received in your entire life but <laughs> my sister this is the first time in the three-year history of the podcast that oh, she no. sent in a question because she's a massive Tea Party fan. She oh, had nice. albums. She's older than me. She had albums from the Tea Party before I even knew what music was. And uh, she sends in this question. So this is from Colin Martin. She asks, where did the worldly music influences come from and how hard was it to incorporate those sounds into your own sound? Very good. Um, I guess the influences came... So again, <clears throat> going all the way back to elementary school and high school, uh, very much a Beatles band, love the Beatles, love all aspects of the Beatles. And as we got older, got into the fact that the Beatles were starting to experiment with world music and world things and world thoughts and so on. And that kicked it into the Led Zeppelin marriage of some world influences and time signatures and, and the quirkiness of that whole vibe. And we just sort of fell in love with it. I mean, Jeff, rest assured, Jeff was the captain steering the ship when it came to, to that. But he he got us into this, and I couldn't help but love the fact that 
you know, you're playing a goblet drum or you're playing a tablet drum and it's sounding like drops of water inter meshed with you know the the heavy one and three on the kick and the the upswing of the two and fours on the snare and just that whole I, I don't I don't like music that is very militant that is very stuck to the grid I mean we didn't use we didn't use any click tracks for these songs when we were kids so I liked the fact that when it comes to an emotional chorus or a subtle bridge, that you're going to slow down or you're going to speed up and you're going to make it heavier. And that's sort of the vibe that I loved with all of the world instrumentation, because it adds this, this audio intrigue that is not normally found in your average rock song. And for us, that was just a notch, another notch in the belt that made us stand out a little bit more the hard part was then trying to figure out how do we do it live and that's when all the toys came out and that's when Stuart literally learned how to play piano and play the keyboards with his feet and 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 I had all the doombecks I had I had a doombeck strapped literally Steve's music in Montreal <clears throat> I got this doombeck from them and they put these uh, screws on either side and then I got this marching band belt thing and I had it between my legs so we'd be playing drums and then the sticks would go down and then I'd be like -da 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 -da. <laughs> it's just it was crazy and so much fun and um, I'm never doing that again no <laughs> but that was a very uh in bon question Colin merci that was great. There, there you go. Uh, yeah. You guys have several instrumental songs across the discography. Uh, we're talking mm -hmm. about this album. So uh, the song Badger's instrumental. How do you decide as a songwriter if a song should remain instrumental or if you should be adding vocals and lyrics to it? Well, okay. So I can't talk too much about this. This is Jeff after all. Jeff is such an incredible acoustic guitar player, um, open string tunings and so on and so forth. It It's usually us that will tell Jeff, you know what, this is just gorgeous. Just leave it alone. There's, there's nothing that could go on here. Um, I always thought it would be cool because uh, he's quite the poet. If he would do something like that and have a speaking part over top of it. And um, you know, maybe he'll do that eventually, but uh, it's usually up to Jeff. I mean, he is the master when it comes to all things strings. So I really don't want to talk too, too much about it, you know? Yeah, you did. You did have a, a hidden track that had spoken word on it, didn't you? Was there one with Roy on it? Or? <clears throat> Roy Harper. Yeah, that was the hidden track uh, at the end of the edges of Twilight. And um, yeah, gosh, now you're really stumping me. <laughs> I didn't listen to this for a while. I usually listen to our demos because they're so different from the live records. But yeah, there's there's that hidden track at the very end of the edges of Twilight that everyone should check out and go buy the new you know go buy it first what's 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 different is now with <laughs> streaming yeah what they have to do is when when these albums are on streaming they have to take the hidden track and then put it on as as a song bonus on track its own, or, you know so yeah. i guess there's more no, people come across it now yeah there's no waiting a minute and a half to hear what happens behind the scenes and stuff like that so so <laughs> you guys actually made history in 1996 because you were the first Canadian band ever to headline Lollapalooza. Do you remember anything from that experience? I definitely do. Um, we had just signed with SRO management, Ray Daniels, so Rush. And so for me, 
my career could literally end the following year because I was just, oh my God, you know, here we are. The Ray Daniels and his staff, who were still good friends with everyone there, uh, lovely, lovely people. And they got this gig for us. And there we are um, hanging around. Uh, the Ramones are there, like the Ramones, all of them. I couldn't believe it. And I still have the eight by 10 signed by each of them. Um, talking with Chris Cornell, uh, Matt Cameron, watching Matt Cameron literally 10 feet behind him, just jaw on the floor. Um, Metallica, of course, <clears throat> they had, they ended the show obviously, but they had so much pyro and stuff like that. Everyone literally needed to be cleared at all. It didn't matter if you're Joey Ramone, I'm sorry, sir, we're going to have to put you over here. And it was just, it was incredible. We, we became very good friends with uh, Ben Shepard. He saved three feral cats that day. It was pretty amazing. Started feeding them. Just right a hero. The... Just being a hero. It's just an everyday hero. You know, look at the cat I found. <laughs> he starts feeding it. It was amazing. I, I can't tell you how much fun that was. Um, and that did us a lot of good. Was that Montreal or Quebec? I can't remember. Quebec City. It's one of the two. We were we were in La Province of Quebec, but I can't remember if it was Quebec City or Montreal. I do remember it was all asphalt, and I thought this is a little dangerous. But honestly, you know, getting to see the Ramones side stage, who gets that? I just, you know, that was an incredible night, and that really helped us, uh, you know, stay top of mind, I guess you could say, preceding uh, the recording and release of transmissions. So. So let's dive into transmission. So this comes out in <laughs> 1997. Five singles, Temptation, Babylon, Release, Psychopomp, uh, Gyroscope. This goes to number three on the charts. Again, double platinum, Juno nomination, rock album of the year. I mean, you guys can do no wrong at this point. And this is where the Tea Party comes into play with me. So I was 12 when this album comes out. And mm -hmm. my very first Tea Party experience was the music video for Temptation. So I remember being 12 <laughs> years old. And there's this dark, intense yeah. video. You have Jeff Martin all in black in the water. There's a monster. There's fire. There's a girl eating hearts. Uh, th that is, I remember just being struck by that. And it's, I, I had to go back now and watch the video to see if my memory of yeah. that from being 12 is is actually what it was. And it it did, it, it, it was an imprint that hasn't see. left me. Not so scary, right? I still, still a little scared, but uh, so... When I listened to this album, it to me, it had a, a heavier sound. Yes, there's the industrial influence that comes in, uh, but it also was just just heavier and meaner. Uh, where yeah. does that aggression come from on this album? Well, to be honest, the aggression came from a lot of the words written by Jeff, and he was going through a hard time then. <clears throat> but that whole album, I can tell you, that after the success of The Edges of Twilight and there was a meeting uh, at EMI or Capital, I think it's EMI at this point, um, in the boardroom with the lovely sound system. And Jeff walks in with three of the demos that we had been sort of kind of working on. And um, it was all of this wacky percussion, which was great interspersed with all of the loops and ideas that he had going in. And then he's, he's trying to explain it. And everyone in the room from the president to the A&R people and everyone just are looking around going, what is happening here? What, what, what's happening? Is this, is this a bad moment in music history? Um, 
but it was it was just so very raw and i mean no words were on it um but it came to fruition obviously we had we had worked really hard we recorded it mostly at jeff's uh place in montreal this ancient building which was amazing to record in um yeah uh, I don't know what what other questions about that. I, I'm kind of stuck. It Sorry. was the success of that album extra sweet. When you think back to where the label guys had no idea listening to those demos, uh, what was going to go? I don't know. They were lovely people. I understood where they were coming from because it was pretty disoriented when when you come in and there's no words on it and there's there's these you know crazy bits of string parts and so on that really didn't make that much sense. Like there was zero four on the floor drumming on it i mean it was like transmission i think in its infancy is a three four uh time signature song and people were just like what is happening where i can't dance to it you know what's happening well gyroscope and as well switches i believe from four four to <clears throat> six four i was gonna ask you is it harder to play songs that have different time signatures or it's all the same it's a feel thing so with gyroscope that's interesting because i i remember when we were writing that and and jeff came up with that pattern and stewart was really digging it and i'm like okay well where is beat one like it's really hard to kind of deal and then i said you know what just lay this down and let me put my headphones on so they laid it down and i just started playing a, a four four time signature which was that much easier compared to trying to find this this six four thing and they were like, that is amazing because now you have this gyroscope of, of uh, music. And that's why it was called gyroscope because it was just kind of going in and out of scope. <laughs> you couldn't cope. This is gyroscope. So um, gyroscope was, is one of my funnest songs to play. I really liked it when we got to do the 25th anniversary tour of that. That was a great one to play. A lot of fun. With the samples, the sequencers, the loops on that album, <clears throat> did you have to develop a, a new skill set for maybe programming and then figuring out how to pull that off live? Yeah, thank God for Stuart Chatwood, like I said, because he he taught me uh, as much as he could. But Stuart is the type of guy to... I mean, he was a techie before the word techie was even in existence. He used to take apart radios when we were kids and just build them back better sort of vibe. So Stuart has always been the 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 man behind all things technology with the band. And he helped me through all of that. And it's wonderful because if you've got someone like that on the team, it makes things that much easier. If you don't, then you're hiring a crew member who doesn't you know really know you all that well and and Stuart has always just been so massively involved in that i mean he registered our band name i think the third week the internet was in existence like it was crazy so pretty cool is there anything you can say about the drum sound for the intro of temptation <clears throat> you have kind of the whizzing sound and then the, mm -hmm. the drums come yeah. in and yeah. it's it's just it sounds so good anything you can share about that it's 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 pretty it's a pretty standard loop it's very led zeppelin -y. everyone thinks it's when the levy breaks but it's not but we took a pretty standard loop and we just dirtied it up as much as we possibly could and um that's all it is and then we programmed it into these spdx pads which were pretty new at the time and the difference was 
with those pads, I also had the kick um, the kick pedal pad, which was not really used what much back then. So <clears throat> if you're playing your standard kit, you've got your kick drum and your hi-hats, right, right leg, left leg. I would, I'd had this tiny little kick pad just to the right of my regular kick hidden under my floor tom. So I could play the whole kit on these, you know, eight pads and the floor uh, with my kick drum. And it just made things that much easier. Um, it was nice because people thought, well, how are you going to be able to do this? And are we just going to be running a track that keeps this drum thing going? And we didn't. I would play that. And then the last hit of that snare before the actual snare drum portion would come in, the intro, we programmed a snare that had um, a lot of reverb on it. So it would carry it, be like, so we were just filling everything with as much sound as we possibly could. And it worked out immensely. It was It was nice to be able to do it without having to run loops and then we tried different things like <clears throat> you know making the drums bigger fatter putting triggers on the snare so we could have 25 percent electronic pad sound from the loop and the actual snare sound and then after a while i was like you know what people are just here for the rock let's let's do the the electronic portion and then after that we'll just you know switch right over to the uh acoustic stuff it's great so there's quite a few bands over the years that have covered songs by the Tea Party. So uh, the band Nevermore covered the song Temptation that we're talking about. And their version actually charted on the Billboard chart. So on the active rock charts in the US. Uh, is it an honor to have other bands cover your songs like you've covered other bands songs in the past? I did not know this at all. I had no idea. I, I think I've heard that cover before, but I had no idea that it charted. Um, it says all. it says it's the Tea Party's only song on the U.S. rock charts, and it's the oh. Nevermore cover. So they went to number 36 on the top 40. You could have did better, guys. You could have <laughs> did better. <laughs> they needed more cowbell. It would have been top 10 for sure. Um, sorry, what was the question? I'm still blown away. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, it's all good. Just uh, we're celebrating your career. So I got to bring all the facts yeah. In, yeah. in here. Um, it's is it an honor when other bands cover your music? Oh, of course, but I really don't know that that many. I mean, I see a lot of guitar players who love classical guitar, um, uh, mimicking uh, Jeff's style or 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 taking on a particular song that he does. But yeah, there's not many bands. I mean, I think the Foo Fighters should cover a Tea Party song and bring it to number one. Really, we're gonna put that, that out be, there in the ether. But it, it, it looked like that. there was it looked like there was probably <laughs> five bands that have covered Tea Party songs, and they oh, all yeah. seem to be like really heavy bands. So I don't know if you know metal fans just love the Tea Party for hey, some reason. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, another awesome. single on the album is Babylon, and the yeah. the music video is unique. So at the time, it was almost unheard of to do a one camera, one shot music video. So you guys were kind of pioneers back then with this video. How hard was it to capture that one take that ended up being the final take? Okay, so that for me and for Stuart and for most of the actors was not hard at all. For Jeff Martin who was strapped into this, this harness and they were dragging him up like pulleys and, and just making him fly through the air. That was, 
I'm sorry. I love you, bro. <laughs> but that was hilarious. <laughs> and his mouth has to be perfectly on. Oh, which is the and, it, and the music was blaring and it was so loud and, and it was really fun. That was George forgetting his last name now, but George had done many videos for us. And that one was really cool. He had actually done the bizarre video for us in Istanbul, Turkey from edges, <clears throat> but he did that one. And that was a cool one shotter and a ton of fun. And that video was actually done in the same space. OLP did a video long before us. It might've been from their first record, but it was this old, I don't know. It was like this hollowed out, place of earth i don't know it's very strange but anyway try to find the videos if you're looking for something to do one day <laughs> so i have one final point about this album and then we'll move on to the next one so the song psychopomp uh that is actually my favorite tea party song period from the entire discography is there anything you can give me as a super fan of that song about <clears throat> any behind the scenes whether it's the first time hearing the music or figuring out your drums for it or the recording or the release, like anything you can give me that uh, I don't know about that song would be amazing. <clears throat> that song was lyrically initially written by me when I was 17 and it was called something more. And it was just a bad dream that I had, but Jeff and I used to write back and forth and there are versions of something more out there from when we were teenagers, <clears throat> but Jeff went back while we were recording and he was just listening to some old cassette tapes and found that. And he thought, wow. And something more had these, I forget what the Roland, this, this little drum component, electronic drum component thing rolling something or other and that's what the drums were on something more when we were in high school and then jeff created this idea that why don't we take that song and turn it into psychopomp and i'm going to change up the words a little bit but i'll keep something more in it and i thought this is amazing so again we wanted to do um a slightly different drum pattern from from temptation obviously <clears throat> that we eventually programmed in and the that song is still probably my favorite song to play there's something about it it's very powerful at the end and um it goes really well with orchestras whenever we're performing with orchestras um yeah it just lends itself nicely to it's pretty it's a, t a nice timeless song i think there's such a great slow build to it of intensity yeah. and yeah. then do you remember the first time hearing that piano like the piano notes that are amazing in it oh yeah 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 i thought that's a little nine inch naily but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you were you were talking about early on, there was maybe comparisons to uh, the Doors and Led Zeppelin. And it's like, yeah. who better to be compared to? So when, when you start to have a little bit more of the um, industrial sound, I mean, who better to be compared to the Nine Inch Nails, right? Absolutely. I thought this, again, I could be compared to much worse. And to say that no one has any influence on anything is silly. So... You know, you can choose the band and I can tell you, you know, some sort of influence, I'm sure that's been um, worn on their sleeves over time. But yeah, that that was that was a very different, very unique album to make. We had a lot of problems. There was some dust from this renovation that was happening in the 350 year old building that Jeff was living in. And we had to redo a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, it was a crazy time.
back then. <clears throat> that one. So in 1999, this is the year before we thought the world would end in Y2K. You guys released Triptych, uh, five singles, including Heaven, Heaven Coming Down and The Messenger. This is your fourth album in a row to go double platinum. At that point, did you think that's just the norm? Everything we do, double platinum. <laughs> like that's the, the basement floor, no matter what. Yeah. Always double platinum. Is that the feeling you got? No, like every year we we always tried um, to get to the American public. Like we didn't write to get to the American public, but we we certainly tried to get released in America. And we thought for sure that this one would would be the one because it was so friendly. And if you if you kind of look at the the growth of the band or, or the development of the albums over the years. This one was kind of harkening back to when we were in high school and the whole new wave vibe and very melodic music and, you know, not mimicking the the synthesizers or, or the, the cheesy drums or anything like that. But the melodies that were, you know, inherent in those songs when we were kids, we were really going for that. And that that shone through. And um, I don't know. But no, I, I, I don't think that we thought that was the norm. I thought that one. <laughs> We thought that one was really going to take off. We're going to go three times platinum on this one. But, um, you know, as you get older, you realize none of this matters. It, it's it's more about being able to do what you want for a living and realizing how lucky and how blessed and how honored you should be feeling to be able to do it when you see so many people out there just <clears throat> unhappy, but doing their best to provide for their family. And so... You know, I, I, there's, there was never been expectations. I don't think we just always hoped that um, something would catch on in the States just to broaden the audience. I mean, we love playing in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Canada, but you know, you just always want to do a little bit more. And, and when you get the opportunity, it's wonderful. But if you don't now, I understand. And it's not that big a deal. So. So the, the first single, uh, Heaven Coming Down. So that's the band's first number one single in Canada. And it's yeah. still to this day, the band's most played song on Spotify with 5 million plays. Okay. Does it have a special place in your heart being the first and only number one? And then why do you think people love that song so much? Well, they love the song because it's, I mean, when you're in a band and you've got a modicum amount of success, you'll get a lot of people that'll come up and say, Oh, I use that song at our wedding, or that was my sister's favorite song. And she was listening to it as she was passing away. And you're just like, Oh my God, and those are heavy, so heavy, heavy moments. Right. And it's an honor, like, Oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is what is happening. So <clears throat> I think people like that song because the words are beautiful. The chimey guitars of the 12 string Rickenbacker, are beautiful um the harmonies at the end the crossing of the lyrics with the backup lyrics um at the very end it just it makes for a very wonderfully powerful song and um that's one that's never been covered i don't think which is weird to me um but i i love it i I got a little tired of playing that song because it's not it's not the funnest song to play on drums. And selfishly, I thought, oh, here we go again. But now I get to sing some backups in it. So it makes it a lot better. <laughs> so I have a confession about the second single, The Messenger. Are you ready for this confession? Okay. I was 38 years old, a.k.a. yesterday, when I found out that this was a cover of a Danielle Lanois song. Mm -hmm. I always, it to me, it was just, it's a Tea Party song. I never knew different until... 
yesterday. Should I be ashamed of this? <clears throat> well, being that you're in the industry, 100%. And I just saw Daniel <laughs> Lanois at Blues Fest in July. He was playing with uh, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. He was a special yeah. guest. I've yeah. seen him in concert with Ray Lamontagne. Like, I'm familiar with his oh, work. And yeah. never since 1999 has it ever come up to me that The Messenger is a cover song. So I don't know what so, to say. I do know he often says, I'd like to thank the Tea Party for the royalty checks from this one, because it does still does well on radio. But yeah, there's something... There's something to be said when, you know, you're online and you read something and someone says, oh, my favorite song is The Messenger. I love the tea party. And it's just like oh, <laughs> a stab to the heart. It's not our song, but we made it our own, you know, and we love Daniel Lanois, obviously. Um, so that was a thrill to be able to record that. We had we had already been doing that song live for for quite a while. And he's such he's the undisputed world champion of producers in my book anyway. And we actually got to play an event at the Toronto film festival one year and we were his band. So we went to his house. It was incredible. And we were just jamming away. And he's like, and then I'd like to go from here to here. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And it was phenomenal. It, that experience in itself was worth my career because he is such a beast and you know he was such a kind gentleman when we were playing with him and you know he's he's going into some wacky time signature and i'm like i don't know where the fuck he is <laughs> what's going on so you know but what a, what a thrill that was such did you guys guy. play the messenger as his backup band no no he, he was like funny. well not we won't be doing that yeah. <laughs> no because we do it very different than him his his is so ethereal and broken down and you know, we kind of made it a pop rock sort of vibe. I'll have to go back and listen to that one now. So I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> one final thing about this album. You'll like this. Rock Hard Magazine released a book of the 500 greatest rock and metal albums of all time. And Triptych is on that list. 500, wow. Yeah. 500 greatest of all time. I thought you would enjoy that little stuff. Where is that magazine from? It must be European. Rock Hard Magazine. Good title for a magazine. So. Rock Hard. It's probably German. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, love, so they love the tea party in Germany. <laughs> nice. And um, we have a, another fan question. This is from Michelle Otier. Her question is, <clears throat> can you explain the technological and creative process the tea party employs, considering that the members live so far away from each other? So I don't know if it's how do you use technology as a band mm -hmm. to write when you're not in the same city? Yeah. So to write, we're always in the same city. So if we have an Australian tour, which is supposed to be uh, next June of 24, an Australian tour, <clears throat> we'll go for two weeks ahead of time, hang around, start writing, bring our ideas that we've already got. After, after the tour, we'll stick around for another two weeks and we've created five or six good moments. We'll lay down some drums and it won't be the drums that end the, the song, but it gives Jeff something to work on and Stuart something to work on. And then on the technology side of things, um, yeah, that's super easy because during COVID, for example, we did some covers and um, it, it was just a matter of me going into the studio and uh, dropping the drums to a quick track that Jeff emailed me um, with his vocal and, a, and an easy tracer on. And it, it's not that, that difficult. I mean, if anything, 
good came out of COVID, I guess, <clears throat> the, the technological side of things uh, vastly improved or became easier for everyone to use. So it's not all that that big. I mean, I'm kind of hoping after this next tour we're out with in the fall that, that Jeff can hang around for a bit because we do have a lot of ideas we'd love to get recorded. So. So in 2000, you guys release a greatest hits album. So Tangents, this goes platinum. There's a new single, top 20 single, Walking Wounded. <laughs> Most bands, you know, maybe they have one hit or maybe they have two hits if they're lucky. For you guys to have enough hits over your career to put out a greatest hits album. And then that <laughs> greatest hits album spawns another hit and the album goes platinum. Uh, does it Does it mean something to you to be able to, even release a greatest hits album. Yeah, I mean, it's an honor. And I didn't even know it went platinum. I don't I don't know if I got an award for that. But anyway, um, no, that that was really cool. And something interesting about when that came out is I think we held on to the video for Walking Wounded until we had a big release party in Toronto. And I'm not sure what the cinema is, but it's the escalators that go up almost four or five you know yeah it's it's massive so we had a contest and you could win to get in through edge or whatever <clears throat> and we kind of hosted this party and then we showed the walking wounded video to accompany the single and that was shot in havana old havana cuba which was outstanding and um yeah that that was pretty cool i don't know how well the single did we had a lot of fun playing it mind you but um, it was a top 20 single, so that's was it? okay. solid, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would expect it. I think we just wanted to sneak something new into the <laughs> into the mix. But an interesting story with that would be um, there's a little tiny kitten at the end of the video uh, of that song. In Is it the same kitten that your friend saved at Lollapalooza? No, but Jeff Martin hid the kitten in his bag and brought it home. <laughs> That is too funny. This is pre 9-11. So you could do things like that. Hide the kitten in your satchel and, and bring it. <laughs> you could bring live animals. Now you can't you can't bring a toothbrush with you. No. It's a weapon. No. So, yeah. <laughs> well, let's dive into uh, the inner zone mantras. So this is uh, 2001, three singles, Lullaby, Angels, Soul Breaking, Rock Album of the Year, Juno nomination. That's like expected now as I go through these albums. Uh, another, this is a gold album. Is it true that the album was recorded in just 20 days? This was a faster album to make? Yeah. Again, um, when we would go into studio, we were already usually performing these songs live. <laughs> and, you know, the bread and butter of a Canadian band in the industry is live performance. And we just, you know, let's not waste time. Let's just go in, bang it out, make sure the tracks are good. Uh, introducing some horn parts, horn sections, um, you know, a, a lot of stuff on that record and very kind of all over the map. Um, I remember writing a portion of this uh, up north uh, on Northern Ontario and it was it was just it was a great time to write it, um, but things were changing at that time. I think that was the advent of um, burning CDs and so on and so forth. And we're see noticing a change. It's like so you're not selling platinum anymore; you're selling gold. And we're like, okay, well, whatever. So long as we can still play in front of that same amount of people or more, and that proved to be true. So it didn't really affect us other than 
if someone had a bruised ego over the fact that they didn't go platinum, which I didn't care. I mean, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. But yeah, great record. That was done in Morin Heights. That's the last album we've done in Morin Heights. And, you know, God bless Morin Heights. It's gone now. But uh, yeah, a lot of great albums recorded there. So you follow that up 2004 with seven circles, three singles, including Writings on the Wall and Stargazer, another gold album, top mm -hmm. five album, another Juno nomination. This is one of the band's most positive sounding albums. Were you guys in a different space for this recording? I think we're in a different space that the album began recording in um, Maui with the one and only Bob Rock, which to us was like, this is pretty cool. Mind you, Jeff was very skeptical because Jeff's the producer and here you are working with Bob Rock. And a lot of the fans, our, our friends, our fans weren't cool with this because they thought, well, what's happening? Why is Bob Rock producing? Whereas Bob Rock really wasn't producing, producing. It was, again, the same situation. And this was, uh, I don't want to say it was the last ditched effort of the record company to try to get us some momentum in America, being blatantly honest. But I'm like, you know, I'm cool with whatever. I'm the drummer. I, I just, I just want to have fun, make wicked music, go out, tour, play, live a wonderful life and, and provide for my family. Um, so I don't think Jeff was very, very much interested in being there. My day was waking up, waking up in the morning at six, going for a jog, coming back, making the best coffee in the world. You know what I mean? And just, you know, start making breakfast, wake the guys up, go, go to Bob's house from literally noon until six, we would go surfboarding or bodyboarding from 10 until 1130 every day. It was outstanding. It was like the best, literally the best time ever recording. It, it's unreal. But um, it fell upon, you know, a, a lot of criticism because of the fact that um, we brought Bob in and he's a sweetheart of a man with no disrespect to him anyway. I, I loved it. Jeff, not so much. Stuart, I, I think Stuart understood why the company wanted to do it. And I don't think he was miffed about it, but at the end of the day, <clears throat> we, we did three songs with him and we ended up coming back and uh, working with Gavin Brown on the rest of it, who was also pretty hot back then. I'm sure he's still hot now. Billy but... Talent, Three Days Grace. Yeah. Exactly. So a lot of the younger bands that were doing that much better than we are, especially in the States, I think that was the move there and Jeff got along with him much better than Bob. Cause I think Bob has this, you know, it's not an ego. He's just got this repertoire of, you know, magnanimous rep repertoire behind him. And you can't really argue with it, whether you like him or not. Right. Or like his productions or not. It, it is what it is. So he got along much better with Gavin. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, that's how we finished the album and, and it, it was a fun album to make. I remember demoing that in Jeff's house when he lived in the beaches. And it was a great, great time, a great opportunity to, I don't know, just have fun and not, not worry about, you know, what, what's going to happen with, with things, you know, it's in the record company's hands now, as they say. So it was good. Yeah. So for our listeners that don't know, Bob Rock, produced and I believe mixed Metallica's The Black Album in 1991. And in the 32 years since then, there is 
there is no album in the US that has sold more copies than the Black Album. Literally, they put out the Black Album in 91. And since 91, <clears throat> nobody has sold more than the 17 million copies that the Black Album sold. And that's why the record label, if they want as much of a guarantee of a big hit, yeah. that's the pinnacle right there. Yeah. And I believe like if you look at charts, you'll still see that album and many classic albums in the top 100 still like it might sit at 91 this week and then next week it's at 79, but it's always there. And it's amazing to me, you know? Yeah. Globally, the Black Album still sells a million copies a year, which is insane. Which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's this is I'm such a music nerd, but uh, the Black Album is only one of three albums that has been on the charts for over 10 years. You're talking about it seems to never leave the top 200. Okay. It's spent so, over 10 years on the, yeah. the top 200. So it'd be that. It'd be like Dark Side of, Dark the, Side moon. of the Moon. And I believe uh, Guns N' Roses' Greatest Hits yeah. hasn't left the charts because everyone, it's just such a, I mean, it's such a mainstream-ish yeah. and success. It's, and before that, you would have had like the Eagles uh, choose hit. choose the Michael Jackson record, you know, whatever you want thriller yeah. probably, right? It, it's unreal how they stick on like that. You you see charting now 564 weeks. It's like what? Yeah, <laughs> as a band, weeks? if your if your album can be on the charts for like two weeks, you're happy with it. <laughs> That's exactly uh, it. So four of the songs on the album, so writings on the wall, luxuria, overload, coming back again. They all have these badass riffs and it's like the band is jamming were you guys having a good time it feels like the band was just jamming and having a good time on at least those four songs yeah i wish i really wish we were playing those songs live like luxuria to me is just a ripper and i love playing that's so like coming back again has all the percussive elements that i love but it's it's just a banger but it I don't know. It just never resonated, I guess, with uh, with Jeff or Stu to to put it in the set lists. Um, and now, further to that, we understand the fact that a lot of people do want to hear, you know, the hits and and so on. And then you try to sprinkle it with some fan favorite deep cuts, but those just usually don't make the mark, I guess. You know. Well, after thirty years, you have the gift and the curse of having so many hits that it takes up your entire headlining set time yeah. to, to play all the hits. Uh, and and I can understand that. I mean, I just went to see um, the Psychedelic Furs in their opening show without Squeeze in Buffalo, where we're kicking off our tour without I'm Mother Earth, and um, it, it blew my mind. Like I knew every song but one. And and they still didn't play all the hits. And I was thinking, oh, man, I really miss this one. I really miss that one. So I, I do get it as a fan uh, that you want to hear, you know, the songs that you remember. And it reminds you of whatever, the birth of your child or your first prom or 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 so. So uh, I guess last thing about this album, this isn't even a question. <laughs> it's just a comment. But the vibe in the verses of One Step Closer Away is amazing. Like just the vibe is so good. I'm I'm blaring it in in the headphones, and <laughs> it's just such a great groove. That is a really good song, and I love the drums on that song as well. I think Holly's on that record too, isn't she? Isn't Holly McMurray? Yeah, yeah, she's on "Wishing You Would Stay." That's so right. That's the yeah. only guest appearance on a Tea Party album, period. Unless there's one on a newer well, album. Roy. Oh, Roy the spoken word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But we that's did a do hidden a, track, so does it actually count? But we yeah, we did a song with Roy though called "Time," 
okay. that, that you can probably find. But Holly, that was my idea. And I don't care what anyone says. Um, the year before we recorded that record, we were at the Junos, or I think I was just made have been Stuart and I, <clears throat> and I was hanging out with my friends in Nickelback at the time. We were at a bar and Holly was doing a bit of a showcase. And I thought, oh man, we haven't seen Holly since um the Edge Fest days, because she was always spotlighted on the Edge Fests. And I just approached her and said, Would you mind? You know, and she thought it was great. So she flew in and pulled that off and I don't know about an hour. <laughs> so amazing. So uh, a decade after that album and after a, a hiatus, you guys released the ocean at the end. This is in 2014. There's two singles, including the black sea, which was a top 40 hit. The album is top 20. What led to the band getting back together after such a lengthy time? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was weird. So the time spent apart, um, it was just a necessary time. Everybody gets on each other's nerves. Um, Jeff wanted to do solo stuff, which I completely get. Um, Stuart just married kids, the whole thing. And it was just, it was time to, to just chill out from everybody. But after a while, the agent is calling and your old manager is calling asking, you know, do you, do you want me to field these calls? Because, um, you know, we're just getting offers to do festivals. You guys haven't done anything for six or seven years. Let's do something. So <clears throat> Jeff was in town visiting his dad and we met up and it was as simple as that. Why don't we just give it a try? You know, I think everybody's, you know, shaken off the cobwebs and and he had two solos out by then, I think, or maybe three. And uh, so off we went and it just turned into, wow, let's, let's do this. So then we started writing again and it, it just, it was great. That's actually the only album since the first album that we actually wrote in our hometown because they were in Windsor quite a bit, LaSalle, Windsor. And um, it was crazy. I mean, we were in a rehearsal hall in our hometown, which never happened. <laughs> and we were writing these songs and uh, we ended up at Revolution in Toronto. It's the nice, big, yeah, beautiful room. And yeah, it was nerve. It was nerve wracking for me at, in the beginning, but it worked out very, very well. And uh, I love that record. To be honest, it's really good. So starting in 2019, you guys put out two EPs: the Black River EP and Sun Shower EP. And those two together make up the full length album Blood Moon Rising, released in mm -hmm. 2021. Four singles, including Black River, which peaks at number three on the charts. What were the challenges of writing, recording, and releasing music during the pandemic? So that was the deal. Um, we had all of this music ready to be recorded, but it's so hard to get together and record. So we had some of the drums were done here and some of the drums were already done. Some of the drums were about to be done, be ready, um, waiting on Jeff to do uh, final vocal tracks. It was uh, a mishmash, but it was organized um, in the way. And the only way we could really do it by trying to maintain you know, a, a bit of integrity was let's just put out two EPs before, you know, we're completely forgotten about. And, and let's just try to keep a little bit of momentum while everyone is, you know, sitting around at home, unfortunately. So it worked out really well. Um, that was a tough time for the band. Mind you, we'd, we'd lost our longtime sound man, Johnny Watt. And uh, we still miss him. He's a lovely man. Uh, and we had, we had dealt with, 
you know, this type of loss before we had lost our manager at 38 years old. He was uh, Stephen Hoffman. And that was preceding triptych, I think, or no, 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 no. Well, way off. No, this was like in 2003. So yeah, it, it was a tough, it was a tough time, but anyway, uh, we did Watsy's song on there and, um, I like those. I didn't realize Black River had gone all the way to number three because that's a fun, a fun one to play. So that that'd be another good one for Guitar Hero. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to remind the guys that we should add that to the set list because we're going over things right now (laughs) for the upcoming tour. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that tour. Uh, I I guess just a couple of things before the tour. You, You guys are now celebrating over 30 years together as a band uh how improbable is it that the same three guys are the same three members in the band i mean normally there's people leaving and you know coming and going and replacing and feuds it's the same trio that knew each other back before high school so one how rare is that and improbable and number two does it feel like 30 years that you guys have been a band no. So as we're talking, I'm looking at your the screen in your background and I'm looking, oh, there's Moist and they don't have their original drummer. There's OLP, a few changes, you know, everyone, Big Rack, all of them, Big Sugar, yeah, finger all of them. Yeah. And and it's um, I mean, it's great. It's it's weird. Like we've literally grown up together. And in when the band was apart, I think what had happened is <clears throat> everyone realized that we we're in this brotherhood we're in this family but we're also in this business and what starts to happen is you're in this cycle and every band can attest to the fact that you write you record you tour small rest write record tour small rest and you just get into this routine and after a while it's like why am i doing this this feels exactly like work this isn't that much fun and I think everyone needed to take a breath and 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 literally feel the fact that, you know, you are very blessed and you are very lucky and you should be grateful. And I wake up every day thinking how grateful I am uh, for all of this. And it doesn't feel like 30 years. Um, I'm not the first person in history to say that because time is fleeting. Um, it, it feels... Uh, playing our, our our little high school concerts feels as long ago as recording our first album, our first two albums. It doesn't, the time just melts into each other. So um, no, I mean, I love the guys. We're the best of friends when we're on stage. We don't get heartbroken when we're not together because everybody lives so far away, but we're in constant contact now. And I think that's what makes the difference because, you know, whether you're a, uh, whether you're a, a, a guy or a girl in a band or you're doing something else and you're a part of a team effort at work, you got to have communication. If you don't, it just kind of falls apart. You know? Yeah. They say being in a band is like being married, but then, <clears throat> but then it's like, well, try being married to two or more people, you know, it's hard enough with one what... person. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I thought I got to bring this up because I thought it was cool. So political groups associated with the tea party movement <sighs> have been trying to purchase the band's domain name for years it's yeah. estimated that the band could get over a million dollars for this website. My mm-hmm. question is, Jeff, is this a backup plan for retirement if if needed? Okay, so let me put this into perspective. So $1 million. <clears throat> you get the $1 million. The $1 million after tax turns into what? 750, call it. Probably 700. 
then your manager takes their commission. Then the lawyers charge you and do all of their commissions. So at the end of the day, you're left with about $150,000, which is a nice amount of scratch, but no one's buying a house. You can buy and then nice you're dividing by the members and then oh it's yeah. it's ridiculous. So no, that'll that'll never happen. And uh that was pretty funny though. I think that's when the band first started touring again or something, and it people were like throwing 10 million dollars around. And if it's 10 million, I might no, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One what one billion. Yeah, yes. what's the number one, that, that changes? One billion dollars, we could do a lot of good for the world. So I would take one billion dollars and change our name to uh be uh I was gonna say big and then wreck, but no, the same yeah. name. So <laughs> our lady wreck. There we go. <laughs> Amazing. So let's let's actually dive into the tour. So this cr- right. cross Canada tour, it's October, November with another iconic Canadian band, I Mother Earth. Yeah. Uh, I got my tickets the moment it went on sale. I got the very first date, which was Ottawa at the Bronson Center, I believe on the Saturday. All my friends and I have a huge group coming. We got on (laughs) at 10 a.m. We got our tickets and then that date sold out. You added a second Ottawa date, that date sold out. You added a third Ottawa date. So we we were leading the charge in Ottawa uh, to set the precedence. And then I believe your Toronto show sold out. You added another date. You added whatever Quebec City. So the tour, it looks like there's a huge demand people want to see you guys people want to see i mother earth uh what what can people expect if they buy a ticket to this tour well for me um i think they can expect uh, a an amazing show we've we've seen the mothers uh, a million times and they've seen us a million times we've never performed on stage together um if you get the little uh, advantage ticket ahead of time we're going to be doing a, an acoustic collaboration, which is really cool. And you get to get in earlier. So that's a good option if you're if you're into that. It also gets you in earlier if it's a non-seated event. You can go right to the front, blah, 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 that whole thing. But selfishly, uh, from my standpoint, I just can't wait to hang out with other people while we're on tour. I mean, I love Jeff and Stuart. We always do, you know art galleries, nice dinners, whatever we can do when we're on a day off. But <clears throat> to, able, to be able to do that with uh, Chris and Jag and, of course, my old friend Edwin from uh, the Crash Karma days, it, it's going to be so much fun. And I think what's going to happen is that's going to translate in the show because, you know, there was always, and don't take this the wrong way, there was always friendly competition amongst all of the bands from the 90s sort of thing. And no, no hard feelings or no you know, disregard for anyone. It was just always friendly. Now, no one gives a shit. We're just going to go out and have a great time, play as long as we possibly can without being kicked out. And and that's about it. You know, I I think it's the new way for, for bands of our ilk to be touring. And I don't see why more bands aren't doing it. I mean, if you can offer your audience another band that you love, that are very like-minded, similar in sound-ish, then and similar in generation, why wouldn't you? So I, I love the idea. I hope it continues. I hope in a summer or two, you know, they bring back edge fests or even something smaller. It doesn't matter. They can do it in arenas instead of football fields. But I just love the whole concept and idea of being out with a band and co-headlining and you know, just kicking butt. It, it's going to be so much fun. 
So similar to what you're saying about having a, a double bill, I saw a big wreck with a Conaline crush not too long ago mm. at the Bronson Center. That's exactly what you're talking about. Just a great double bill that, you well, know. Something that everyone enjoys. And it's, you know, they're they're very different bands, but they're from the same era. And man, we used to tour with the Conaline so much. And lovely people, amazing. Trevor's such a great singer and a lovely human being. But it just offers the audience because there is so much out there nowadays. And we know people, you know, a lot of times this is this is their night out and you don't want to screw it up. I don't ever want to screw up anyone's night out. I want to be able to put on a show that blows their mind. And when they walk back into work on Monday or Tuesday and they're just talking about it and thinking what a great time that was. And I appreciate that. I know what hard work is like and I know how hard people work for it. And you know, I just, I, I, I think people are going to have their heads turned with this one because it's going to be a, a great time. I saw you guys at Blues Fest in Ottawa a couple of years ago. Uh, mm. I believe it was Widemouth Mason that was opening that night. I could be wrong. Yeah. And it was last, uh, summer, last summer. Yeah. Yeah. Last yeah. summer. So I was there this year as well. So I, I tend to mix up all the band. I'm there. <laughs> I'm there every day. I'm just there for two weeks every day, yeah. uh, taking in all, all the music. So uh, you guys had a great set. I, I remember uh, messaging you saying that was one of the top five performances of the whole festival. And oh, uh, thank you. So I'm excited to see you guys in October. Uh, let's talk Crash Karma quickly here. So in, in 2008, you guys formed the super group Crash Karma. Uh, you mentioned uh, Edwin of I Mother Earth, Mike Turner, Our Lady Peace, Amir of uh, Zygote. Uh, so released two albums, Crash Karma 2010 and Rock Music Deluxe uh, 2013. You guys charted four top 20 singles, Awake, Fight, On My Own, and Tomorrow. And I was able to infiltrate the Crash Karma camp. And I have uh -oh. some kind words from Mike <laughs> Turner. Uh, oh, geez. Who he man, he was a part of Our Lady Peace for their their first four or five albums, their most iconic albums, including the diamond selling album Clumsy, I have up on my wall here oh, somewhere. Uh, so this is what Mike has to say. What can I say about JB? I'm very happy to call him my friend. He's that very rare thing, a truly great man. Let me catalog his gifts. Brilliant, inventive, and a ridiculously powerful drummer. He's a generous musician. Always collaborative and supportive, no matter the situation. He even manages to be the most fun guy in the room at the same time. He's a <laughs> devoted family man, as well as a tireless worker in his community, remaining active in several charities. It's almost annoying. <laughs> While on the road, he and I generally shared accommodations. And even with that level of contact, I have no irritations with him. Do you have any idea how unlikely that is? I can complain about pretty much anything, but not about JB. I view Crash Karma as a wonderful gift. Most of my memories with the band involve laughing my head off, often inspired by Jeff. We've had a lot of great musical moments as well, always driven by Jeff. From playing in Afghanistan, Egypt, a little part of France, and touring coast to coast here at home, Jeff always made his surroundings better with great playing and an ongoing sense of play and everything else. Oh, and he also has great hair. And yes, it really does look like that naturally. So that's from Mike <laughs> Turner, Our Lady Peace, Crash Karma. Oh, I love Mike. Mike is... <laughs> Mike can talk like no other i love that man so much he would literally lull me to sleep with some of his his prose that he'd be speaking of that night <laughs> it was amazing i love those guys oh man ck best stuff ever it's good so time. with with you and edwin being on tour for october november with the i mother earth and the tea party uh joint tour 
is there going to be any talks behind the scenes of anything crash car i'm asking know. for the fans you know i don't i don't know uh We've been talking because it was just Edwin's birthday yesterday or the day before, and we have this thread going on, this goofy thread that we've had going on for 10 years plus. And um, uh, I know the guys are all coming out. I know that Ed and I are are anxious to see everybody all in the same room and go for our favorite Chinese place in Toronto. But um, yeah, I... I'm open to anything all the time. You know that I, I can make time no matter what I'm doing. It's always, it's always fun with those guys because you know what, at the point that we got together, it was, you know, we don't need to prove anything to anyone. Let's just have a really good time. And I didn't realize we had that much chart success to be honest, which is nice to hear. Um, and we had a great manager at the time, Jake, Jake gold, who takes care of all the hip stuff again. So the hip, you know, the watchman, he's yeah. had a lot of success. He's yeah. So all of those guys. Uh, that's so kind of Mike, though. You know, pretty lucky, man. I'm so lucky. <laughs> I've got good people. So as we wrap up the interview, I like to ask musicians <laughs> what bring them joy outside of music. Uh, can you add any details about your three-legged dog, motorcycles, yep. <laughs> power skating with Bob Probert, <laughs> collecting wine? Any of those four things? Can you can you give oh, us? Oh yeah. Well, so my dog, you might've heard my dog earlier. She was sitting in this bed. So you're propped up right now, just so everybody knows you're on my pool table. So I put my dog in this bed and then one of the boys came home. So now she's on a bed over, over there. Um, what can I say? No, she was, uh, she was a, a dog that we got during COVID. <clears throat> she, uh, her, her left her right leg is missing. So her left leg has kind of centered itself. She's the cutest thing on earth. Uh, she's a red toy poodle. You put her in the pool. She loves to swim, but she only goes in circles because she's only got the one leg. Um, she can be a little bit yappy, but, um, and I never wanted a dog, but she, of course, if you don't want her, she's my favorite or I'm her favorite now. So there's that. Um, the wine collection, my wife has put an embargo on my visa so um, I can no longer buy any more wine until we start drinking it. And I'm not drinking now until after the tour. So the wine will be fine. Are you <laughs> not drinking? Cellar. You, you got to fit into your tour outfits. Your, oh, your boy. Don't even go there, buddy. And, no? Don't even go there, my man. <laughs> I I started uh, I started CrossFit uh, about three weeks ago and it's kicking my ass. So it's good, though. I feel good. So final two questions, and these are deeper questions. Can you handle two more questions? I don't usually talk this much. I'm ready. All right. So I'm going to hit you with a few stats, and then I'll ask the final two questions. So I want to wrap up the Tea Party's career in a little bubble so you can soak in uh, all that you've achieved. Because, you know, a lot of times Uh, uh, we don't take a moment to, to... step okay. back and actually I don't like that though. Uh, I'll do what you want. Okay, okay, here we go. You can you can put the earmuffs on or close your eyes. <laughs> so, The Tea Party, 9 studio albums, 3 live albums, a greatest hits album, 23 music videos, 3 EPs, 25 singles, 13 Juno nominations, 6 much music video awards, 7 albums that have either gone gold, platinum or multi-platinum and 3 to 4 million albums sold globally. When you hear all of that, when you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for? I am most proud of the fact that I got to be in a family business with my best friends and provide for my family. 
That's what I'm most proud of. What was the other half? Most grateful for. Oh, I'm grateful for everything. Come on. Um, the fact that um, the modicum amount of success that, that it has given me, and I've stayed in my hometown, it does allow me to do a, a lot of um, charity work. And, you know, more like top of mind awareness, you know, working with so many different charities from the Canadian Mental Health Association and Harmony in Action, which is adults with disabilities and mental um, issues and so on and so forth, or learning issues, I should say. Uh, I just love being uh, able to do that and provide the time that needs to go into it. I am so grateful for that because, and uh I don't know. It's it's just a wonderful feeling. It's it really does feel good to to give selfishly. It feels really good to give back. Final question. If you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10-year-old self and you could whisper words of advice. So you've had a lifetime since then of of um lessons and mentorship and ups and downs and dreams and all this stuff. If you could just whisper a few words uh, to cute little Jeff sitting there. Did he have amazing hair back then? I don't know. But if you whisper, uh -huh. <laughs> if you whisper some words, what words of advice do you provide to help little Jeff get through this life experience? Um, <clears throat> hmm. I would say something to the effect of when things get really hard or when things get really tough and when you feel like nothing is going right, things always end up going right. You can't worry about, even when they go wrong. So let me rephrase that. Don't worry about things so much because at the end of the day, you're here for a very short time and do the best you can and love the people who love you back. That's about it. And is there anything you'd like to say to the fans that have supported you as a musician who have supported the Tea Party for 30 plus years? Yeah. Um, well, they know. I thank them all the time and I'll thank them again. Um, you guys know. I love you guys. <laughs> I'm looking over here. No, I'm right there. Uh, I love you guys and I appreciate it. And um, what you've given not only myself, but our bandmates, uh, this wonderful opportunity to be able to perform for you. I wish we could perform more in Europe. I wish we could perform more elsewhere in, in the States, but <clears throat> maybe hold out some hope but uh yeah thank you thank you thank you i'm blessed and i'm grateful so as we wrap up i just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a drummer i want to acknowledge you for your charity work uh that that shows others why that's important and hopefully inspires other musicians to give back and do the same. I want to thank you for being one of the nice guys in the music industry. Uh, <laughs> as you know, all the kind words that were sent in, they all, all of them said he's such a nice guy and he gives back and he's selfless. Uh, so they can't all be wrong unless I got just the right <laughs> five people. Uh, I, I want to thank you personally for all the incredible music you've put out over the last 30 plus years with the Tea Party and with Crash Karma. This is the soundtrack to my life from a teenager until now. When I went back and listened to the entire discography, I actually knew almost all of the music. And uh, <laughs> I realized that I've been along the, for the, the whole journey with you guys. So to sit down with you here today, it means a lot. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank you for this interview. Uh, me being able to sit down for the last two plus hours with someone that I've uh, admired and been a fan of for a long time. I've been able to ask 
all my questions. You've answered yeah. them. I'll be yeah. able to sleep better tonight than I've ever slept <laughs> because I have no more questions for the band. So but Jeff, you thank you so ask much. Me, you didn't ask me about, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, don't. Oh no. We'll have to do a follow-up then. So Jeff, no. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Joel. I really appreciate it. And I'm finally, I'm so happy we finally got to do this. I know we've been trying and this has been wonderful. So thank you for your patience. You're very welcome. So to the Jeff fans, to the Tea Party fans, to the Crash Karma fans, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>